So, good morning, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church on this Sunday, the 13th of August, 2023. Um, Whether you've had a bad week or a great week, whether you've come from afar or whether you've just come around the corner, whether you are a visitor with us or whether you are a regular with us, whether you're in here in church or listening in online, may I just say welcome. And we're here to worship God, the God, the creator. And we're going to do that in several ways this morning. We're going to sing hymns to him. We're going to be praying to him. We're going to open up the word, the Bible, and we're going to hear of his words to us. And we're very grateful this morning to have Alex Hanna from UCCF come and preach later on. So we're looking forward to that. And Duncan will be leading us in a communion later on as well. So we're going to be worshipping God in many different ways. And um, I just ask you to enjoy your time here. Thank you. He will be pleased you are here this morning to be with him, to worship him. Psalm 16, a victim of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, please do keep your Bibles open um, to Psalm 16. And let me begin by asking you a question. What is it that you desire? What is it that you desire, that you want more than anything else in this world? Is it to travel, to to spend more time with family, maybe to go to university, to live life to its fullness? Well, let me suggest that there's one desire that is shared not only with all of us in the room, but all of us as humans worldwide. It's a desire that is identified by most of our actions. Most of our decisions all point to this one desire, and that is a longing for security, a longing to be safe. And it's understandable, isn't it? Ever since Genesis chapter 3, ever since the fall, we've lived in an unsafe world. We now now have to look over our shoulder. We can't put our head on the pillow in peace without checking that the door is locked. We long for security. And when we feel like that security is threatened, well, we go and we seek refuge. We see it all over the place, all over, don't we? 
We see it from toddlers who fall and bump their knee. They run to their mum or dad. We find the people that we know that we feel safe with, safe with when we walk into a crowded room. We run into the arms of loved ones at the, at the end of a bad day. We see refugees leaving war-torn countries to nations where they can be safe. Each one of us seeks refuge in many different ways. But where can we turn for refuge when, when things get really, really tough? When the problem at work follows you home and causes a sleepless night? When the breakdown of a relationship occurs? When an ongoing chronic illness or the onset of a sudden one? And where can we turn when faced with the ultimate threat to our security? Death. Where can we find refuge? Ultimate refuge? Well, Psalm 16 gives us the answer. In this psalm, David seeks and finds security, and he begins by turning to the person he knows that can provide it. Look at verse 1. Preserve me, O God. David turns, as he has in many of our psalms, he turns to the Lord with a plea. But as we read through this psalm, we can see that it's unlike those other psalms of David where his security is threatened. There's no dogs encompassing him. There's no crying out from the pit. We're not actually given details or of the struggles or the enemies who are chasing him. He doesn't tell us what alarms him, but rather he tells us, he tells us what anchors him. He doesn't tell us what alarms him, rather what anchors him. Because look again at verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And in this morning we will see, and this morning we will see that King David is able to pray with full confidence that in the Lord he will be secure. And that in King Jesus, we too are able to find that same security. And we'll do that in four points. So our first point this morning is the king's desires, verses one to eight, the king's desires. David is able to pray with such assurance because he is single-heartedly and utterly desiring the Lord. It is him, in him, that he is taking refuge. Verse two serves as the headline I say to the Lord, notice the capital letters, I say to the Lord, Yahweh, God's personal covenantal name, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord, this time in small, letter, or in small caps. This is not the Lord's name, rather a rank as covenant master. David's saying, you're the boss. My will is to do your will. Right from the off, we see that David's confidence comes from having this relationship with the covenantal Lord marked with willing obedience. Here we see a devotion, devotion with a desire for God himself. And there's great benefits, real, real great benefits of this covenantal relationship because look down in verse two. I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. Not only devotion, but here we have delight. You see, David has learned and realized that all the good, all the blessing, all the joy that he seeks can be only found in one place. And we see this in verse five and six. Just cast your eyes down. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. 
Those words, portion, lot, boundary lines, inheritance, they echo the language used in the book of Joshua in the distribution of the promised land. Now, David could be speaking about a physical land, but I think it's more likely that David is referencing something else. Because in Joshua, we read that each tribe was given a portion of land, bounded by lines, given an inheritance to keep. But there was one exception. One exception, the tribe of Levi, the Levites, the tribe of the priests. Well, they were told that they wouldn't have a physical land a physical portion, but rather their portion was to be the Lord himself. The Lord would be their portion. And here, David is claiming that inheritance for himself. He is claiming the inheritance of the Lord himself. And what a beautiful inheritance, David says it is. Not only is the Lord his inheritance, his portion, but he's also his counselor. Verse 7, I bless the Lord which, who gives me counsel, In the night also my heart instructs me. His counsel is given to him. In the night his heart and his kidneys instruct him. Here David is showing glimpses of the blessed man that we read of in Psalm 1. The one who is truly content. The one who is happy. The one who is filled with joy. Who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. But rather meditates on God's word night and day. The king's refuge in God is inherently tied to this joy that David has. Desires have led to delight. And he contrasts this joy, the joy of knowing God, the joy that can be found only in God, he contrasts that with the misery of those who run, who run after idols. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. In his commitment to the Lord, David says that he has nothing to do with idols, nothing to do with those who chase after them. And now it's easy for us to think that those who chase after other gods, those small g gods, as being those out there, those from other nations. But David, I think, is talking about the Israelites, the people of his country, of his nation, God's own people, God's covenant people. In the Old Testament, we see multiple times that some Israelites would turn from Yahweh to sacrifice to other gods, a way of hedging their bets. Fertility, rain, harvest. Well, we've, we've been told that God will provide for us, but we'll have a flutter and bow just in case. Now, by our world standards, it makes sense, doesn't it, not to put your eggs in one basket. But by God's standard, it's detestable. Now, it is unlikely that we're here performing today um, rituals involving blood offerings, drink offerings of blood. But think of how we can often fall into the same trap as those Israelites. How we can often run after the other gods in our lives how we often search for refuge and security in those things rather than in the Lord. Money, career, a good degree, a husband or wife, children, success. We look to those things for security, don't we? Instead of delighting in God, instead of finding all goodness in Him, instead of praising Him for the good gifts that He has given us, we so often run to these things. 
and think that there's greatest, there, greater, there is greater goodness in the gifts than in the giver. These things that promise a feast, but instead deliver a famine. They offer the illusion of security, but just like the little pig in a house of hay, it can all come tumbling down. As we turn away from God, we find that our sorrows will multiply. That's what David says here. To seek refuge in the Lord, to have him as your ultimate desire, as your ultimate delight. Well, that is to turn away from these idols. And there is ultimate delight in the Lord. But delight is not just found in him, but also it can be found in his people. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. What is your view of the people around you here this morning? Best maybe not to answer out loud. It's a strange relationship that we have, isn't it? It's a very strange relationship, a relationship like no other in this world. The relationship that we have as the people of a church, it's very weird. But it's also one of the greatest apologetics in the world. Deep friendships that are often closer than blood bonds, based not on something fleeting or passing, not on just something in common, but rather rooted in Christ. A few years ago, some of my Christian friends that I met in London came to visit me in Northern Ireland. And one night we went out to my granny's farmhouse and um, we had supper. And over supper, it didn't take long for my family to see that these five English men and women were very, very different to, to me. They spoke about things such as art and theatre. They used words and phrases that have never been heard within those walls and have, will never be heard again, most likely. Words like Renaissance and phrases like, this would go really well with some avocado. <laughs> and when they left, my granny turned to me and she just said, where on earth did you meet these people? <laughs> and the answer is the church. Plain answer, simple answer, the church. Yes, we are very different. We have very little in common, but the one thing we do have in common is that we love Christ and are loved by him, rooted in him. And because we love Christ, we love one another. And yet, despite knowing this, despite seeing glimpses of the wonderful witness that a church can have, well, how often do we get it wrong? How often do we find ourselves frustrated with those around us? I'm sure I have been a source of frustration for those in my church. I know that I've not loved my brothers and sisters in the ways that I, ha I should have. And it's so common to hear Christians throw one another under the bus, throw other churches under the bus. But see what David is saying. His delight is in the holy ones. He says, that, he says Lord, I want to associate with your people the men and women who trust you, who love you, who honor you with their lives, and regardless of what the world thinks about them, my delight is in them, because their delight is in you. A devoted and delighted desire, a desire to know God in the vertical, always has to play out in the horizontal. To love God is to love his people. There's no such thing as an individual Christian. 
Yes, they will mess up, as will you. But isn't the Bible wonderfully realistic? Saints don't always accidentally. Most of the New Testament letters wouldn't be there if Christians were perfect. If you love the Lord, if Yahweh is your Lord, verse 2, well, in verse 3, you will prize his people, otherwise something is wrong. And even thinking on a practical level, when our security is threatened, where do we seek refuge? What does that often look like? Well, often it looks like God using the church family around us to bring comfort. The well-timed messages or phone calls, the meals brought to your door, being welcomed into homes when you feel lost, embraces that offer the same protection as a fortress. Brothers and sisters, never take for granted the blessing of being in a church family. Never take for granted the comfort and joy that can only be found from God's people. Yes, the king delights, and his, all of his delights flow from that ultimate desire. Verse 8 is a helpful summary. I have set the Lord always before me. David has set the Lord always before me. That is the summary of his desires, and from that flow his delights. But his pure desire not only influences what he delights in, but also in his destiny, and that is our second point, the king's destiny, verses 8 to 11. David is certain that his plea for security will be delivered. In verse 8, he not only has the Lord before him, but beside him. At his right hand, he knows that he won't be shaken. David is saying that being so single-hearted in his desire for God means that he cannot be shaken. And look at the results. Verses 9 to 11, they read like our national anthem. If God saved the king is in verse 8, well, here is the king being sent victorious, happy, and glorious. Just focus in on verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave, nor will you let your holy one, your anointed king, see corruption. Here is King David's ultimate security, a physical life that won't see the grave, that will not be corrupted, a life where his whole being rejoices because his life is safe, safe from that ultimate threat to security, death. Note that his joy isn't in being saved from death. His joy isn't even living forever, but the joy is in who that eternal life will be spent with. It'll be spent with God. David has set Yahweh before him, and with God at his right hand, he will not be shaken. And here in verse 11, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. King David's desires determines his destiny, and so we seek the same destiny by finding this refuge with this king. But here we see an elephant in the room. Our third point, a, a dilemma. Here is the dilemma, because we read this and we feel uneasy, or at least I do. I'm uneasy because I don't look like this. I'm left questioning, are my desires this pure? Are my desires this focused, so unwavering? 
Well, the answer is no. And I suspect it's no for you as well. If you're a visitor or a non-Christian and you've been under the impression that we, what we've read is true for the rest of us, well, let me assure you that it's not. Our desires waver. They're often mixed, too often compromised. And it gets even more cloudy, more cloudy when we think of, does this even describe David? King David himself, a man after God's own heart. Well, if you know anything of David's own life, you'll know that he didn't reach these standards himself. He failed. He was compromised. Psalm 16 says that the ultimate refuge and the joy that comes with it is possible for those who have pure desires. And there's a litmus test. The litmus test is death. And when we look at that test, when we are faced with that, well, the harsh reality is that none of us will pass it. Death is very much still in all of our destinies. And as for King David, well, he also died. His body did see corruption. He was buried. And so here is the dilemma. Is this all just fairy tales and positive thinking? Or does real security, this security, actually exist? Well, the good news for all of us this morning is that this is not the last time we come across Psalm 16 in Scripture. Turn to Acts chapter 2, if you have a Bible, and reading from verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Our final point this morning is King Jesus delivers. King Jesus delivers, because as we just read in Acts chapter 2, Peter reads verses 8 to 11 of Psalm 16, and he says, here is a king who this is true of. Here is one who had true refuge in the Lord. Here is the one who can sing and pray Psalm 16 fully and perfectly. And how do we know? Well, he passed that litmus test because he was not abandoned to death. He didn't stay dead. He rose victorious. And Peter says that King David, well, King David knew that he wasn't speaking about himself in Psalm 16. How? Because David is dead. His tomb is right over there. In fact, David knew that he would die, that he wasn't going to be this king, but rather one of his descendants would be. Here is the Christ, the true anointed king, the true holy one of God. Here is Jesus, who although he died, he was not abandoned, and he lives even to this day. We can see a glimpse of that in Psalm 16. Look at the language that David uses back in Psalm 16. 
my Lord, my delight, my lips, my chosen portion, my cup, my lot, my right hand, my heart, my whole being, my flesh, my soul. And then in verse 10, your Holy One who will never see corruption. What was partly true of David is fully true of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like so many times in the Bible, when we read of David, we see the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Here is another. Paul also references Psalm 16 in Acts 13 as a defense of the resurrection. And so Peter and, Peter and Paul use verse 10 in this defense of the resurrection. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to think that the apostles are just pulling Jesus out of the psalm like a rabbit out of a hat. We're in trouble if we read the psalm about, as being all about David and then boom, verse 10, now we're talking about Jesus. No, it's all about Jesus. Psalm 16 is all about this king, the true king. He is the one who had perfect devotion and obedience to the Lord. He is the one who experiences every blessing and joy in God alone. He is the one who delights in God and his holy people. He is the one who never fluttered with another God. He is the one who had true and full contentment in the Lord. He is the one who always sought and kept the counsel of his father. He is the one who always had his eyes fixed on the Lord, and it is proved that he is the one who has not seen corruption or been abandoned into the grave. He is the one who has this incredible joy, and he is the one who invites us here this morning to pray and sing the psalm with him as our own, so that we too can share in that joy. Three responses that we'll have to the psalm, and then I'll finish. Firstly, love the king. Love the king. We began by thinking where we can find refuge in this broken world. And from Psalm 16, the answer is not so much finding refuge with the king, but finding refuge in the king. Finding refuge in King Jesus. Because here is a king in whom we can claim these words for ourselves. Here is a king who died, who rose, to make us one of his younger siblings, to share in his inheritance. Here is a king who has carried us and will carry us through death and into a life that cannot be shaken, an eternal life. Here is a king who allows us to have the fullness of joy that begins now and will carry out throughout the ages. And so if you're here this morning seeking, searching for security, longing for joy, well, let me urge you to, to stop looking around and instead to look to this king. Here is a king whose promises have been sealed that we know are true because of his resurrection, because of him being risen from the dead. Here is a king that really, it really, really matters whether or not you swear allegiance to him. Because look, if those that reject him that run after another god in verse 4, those who hedge their bets, well, their names won't be on his lips. But for those who respond with love and trust and faith, well, they are his delight. The promises of King Jesus, well, they can be yours here this morning. Let me urge you to love this king. 
Here is one that promises a feast and delivers. Here is one that offers real and eternal security. Here is one that offers and delivers forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Love this king. Secondly, desire this king. Desire the king. Maybe through reading the psalm this morning, you've discovered a sense of envy, wanting more than anything to be like this, wanting to desire God this way, but feeling very frustrated about how often you get it wrong. Well, brothers and sisters, trust that his spirit, that the Holy Spirit is making you more like this king day upon day upon day. Ultimately, as the spirit of Jesus works in our hearts, he reconfigures our deepest desires. He causes desires to grow, desires to know God, to delight in him, to believe that blessing is only and can only be found in him. Desires to long and obey the Lord. And we will so often fail, won't we? Our desires will often be compromised. Prayer will be needed day upon day time after time. But we do know that it's possible to have these these desires. We can look forward to to the letter of Philippians with Paul able to say that whatever whatever gain I had, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Keep desiring this King. Count all other things as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Desire this king. And then finally, enjoy the king. The psalm is not just about Jesus' resurrection, but it's mainly about Jesus' joy. In a world where you can so often feel beaten down, here by looking to God, by desiring him, by delighting in him, true joy is on offer. And now this joy doesn't look like the absent of sorrows, or the absence of suffering. We only have to look at the life of David, look at the trials that he experienced. Ultimately, we can look to our King Jesus, he himself, a man of sorrows, whose suffering and sacrifice we'll remember and celebrate as we come to the table in a few moments. No, to enjoy this king doesn't mean the absence of sorrows. It doesn't mean to be happy. It doesn't mean to put on a fake smile ear to ear, but rather it means to humbly trust in the Lord, striving after his King and allowing him to become our deepest longing, our greatest desire, trusting in his promises and seeking him for refuge, turning to him for refuge. Now, you may be in a position here this morning where that joy, it seems a lifetime away, Well, here is a psalm for those moments. In our cries for protection, in our longing for security, even when faced with the realities of living in this broken world, in our confrontations with illness and death, here is a real confidence that we can claim as ourselves, as our own, for ourselves. Here is real hope, here is real joy. All because of our God and King, In Jesus, there is real joy in offer, and in him our joy can be as full as his grave is empty. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, you're good, you're holy, and we thank you, Lord, for the psalm of David. We thank you that we can pray and sing these words of the King because of the King of Kings. Father, we praise you. Praise you that all these blessings can be ours because of what Christ has done for us and because we are in him. We thank you, Father, that in Christ there is forgiveness of sins, there is eternal life, there is unparalleled joy, there is ultimate refuge. And Father, we realize that we often fall short of these desires. Our delight is often found in in other things. Our devotion is often compromised. And we pray that by your help, you would help us to love this king and his people that we would be able to claim and feel that the words of Psalm 16 truly express our devotion, our delights, our desires. So Lord, help us to flee from idols, help us to turn to you, help us to find all goodness and security in you and in you alone. Lord, reconfigure our desires. Let us truly count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father, we pray that you would help us to experience real joy in Christ as you provide us refuge from now through death and into eternity, as you lead us along the path of life. Father, we pray that you would protect us. Lord, we pray that we too will be able to sing that the Lord before me constantly has set the Lord alone because he is at my right hand. I will not be overthrown. And we thank you that we can sing this only in the name of our wonderful, good, loving King, in Jesus Christ. Amen.